Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. This episode is airing in two parts because there is so much good information that we want to share with you. This is part one. I recommend you also listen to part two. Our guest on Future Hindsight today is Andrea Miller. She's the president of the National Institute for Reproductive Health and its Action Fund, which build power at the state and local level to change public policy, galvanize public support, and normalize women's decisions about abortion and contraception. The organization also conducts groundbreaking public opinion research that provides a new framework for talking affirmatively about abortion and mobilizing voters to take action in support of a proactive agenda. Ms. Miller is a nationally recognized expert in reproductive rights and women's health for more than two decades. Thank you for talking to us today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. My first question is, how are civic engagement and reproductive rights connected? They're intimately connected. The connections between reproductive rights and civic engagement are actually quite strong. When you look across the country right now, you see extraordinary support for women's ability to make reproductive decisions, including the decision before the Supreme Court from 1973, Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion across the country. And yet, conversely, we have an extraordinary number of laws on the books at the state level and now increasing threats coming from Washington, D.C. because of President Trump and the Congress that are anathema to those views and values. There's a huge disconnect right now between what policymakers are doing and what the public wants. The reason you have a disconnect is that people are often unaware of the kinds of laws that are being passed that truly roll back their rights and their access to reproductive health care, both abortion and contraception, and aren't necessarily then engaging in the public discourse about it or in the, the voting booth about it or engaging their elected officials to let them know what they expect and demand of them on this issue. More civic engagement would mean better policies on reproductive rights and health. What actually is the current level of support for abortion rights and access? You know, it, it's actually quite high. In fact, there's sort of a misperception out there that this country is equally divided on this issue, that it's hotly contested, that it's this very close margins, when in fact, it's actually not true. Um, we know that at least 72% of the American public right now supports the decision in Roe versus Wade, which made abortion legal across the country. That's an extraordinarily high statistic. But then you can take a look at how this plays out in people's daily lives and how they think about it in terms of their own lives and the lives of the women they know and love. 80% of the public in a very recent poll that we did said, look, as long as abortion is legal, which it is under Roe versus Wade, women should be able to get safe, affordable, quality abortion care in their own communities. That's 80%. That's four in five people across the country. And when you ask them, so a woman's decided to have an abortion. The reality is one in four women will have an abortion in their lifetime. And you ask people, well, how would you want that to be? What would you want that experience to be for her once she's made that decision? You see even more support. You see over 90% saying, yes, it should be safe. It should be informed by medically accurate information, as opposed to the kinds of laws we're seeing in the states where doctors are forced to tell women lies to try to dissuade them from having abortions. They want it to be respectful of her decision. They want it to be supportive. It's a very different environment in the public 
consciousness about this and in people's daily lives than what you're seeing in terms of the laws that are currently on the books and the trend of laws that we've seen, particularly in the last couple of years. So you mentioned two things just now. One is that people are not civically engaged on the issue, and the other one is about the laws that are coming out or already on the books and the trend to roll back reproductive rights. How is it possible that there is such a strong divergence between one and the other? I think a lot of it is that there has really been a sort of quiet erosion of the rights, and up until very recently, people weren't seeing it because, frankly, it wasn't being talked about very much. And even when it was, it wasn't talked about in ways that really captured people's imaginations and their attention. So when we tell people now that just since 2011, there have been 401 laws against abortion passed at the state level, in state legislatures, they're shocked. And then they're appalled. And then they're like, how did this happen? Who's behind this? Why didn't I know this? And a lot of it is that when we do see the media cover these issues, maybe they'll cover one particular law that's being discussed, but they don't put it in the context of all the other laws that have already been passed. So people don't see the connections. You know, it's my job to know what the laws are on the books in all of these states and what's happening in Congress and the ways that the Trump administration is trying to overturn Roe versus Wade and roll back access to affordable contraception and undermine abortion rights. That's my job day to day, so I know it. These are not easy things sometimes to find. Without that knowledge, it's hard to engage on the issue. When people know, they get active really fast. And it's been extraordinary to see how just that little bit of of knowledge is such extraordinary power. And it's information that is knowable. That's, again, where civic engagement comes into play. It is very easy to find out who represents you. What's their position on these issues? And don't just look at who's in Congress or the president, not to say those aren't important, they're critical. But day to day, your state legislator and your city council person can have as much of an impact, if not more, on access to these services and your rights than you might realize. And you're their direct constituent. You might be going to the grocery store with them. You might be going to the same park. Your kids may be in the same school. These are people you have direct access to and can have a real conversation with. And that's really, I think, where it starts. Right. We should definitely have a direct conversation with our elected representatives. Exactly. And press them on the issue. That's right. Hopefully that will change the tide. There are some other things that are extremely onerous in terms of access. What are the most onerous laws that have been passed in the last 10 years, let's say? That's a great question. So there are quite a number of laws that are on the books, and we actually think that if you had to assess the states now, more than half of them are either extremely hostile or hostile to access to abortion. They have multiple laws on the books. Any woman who's trying to obtain an abortion may have to overcome a whole set of hurdles. So imagine the scenario. You decide that an abortion is the right decision for you. You have to travel hundreds of miles to the nearest clinic. Once you get there, you're told that the physician has to give you a lecture that includes medically inaccurate information like abortion causes breast cancer or infertility, which is categorically untrue, disproven. You are then told you need to wait and come back anywhere from 24 to 48 to 72 to 120 hours, which is days and days, before you can have the procedure. 
Some women then go back home and have to make a second trip. Some women we know sleep overnight in the parking lot because they don't have the resources to have a place to stay and they can't afford to make the trip back and forth. What if they have children at home, most of whom do? How are those children taken care of during that period? So they have to make determinations about that. Many women do not have jobs that are flexible. So again, that's a huge hurdle just for that one type of law. Then add on to it that her insurance probably can't cover it. So she has to find the resources elsewhere. If she's under 18, she probably has to talk to a judge and get permission if she can't talk to her parents. Add on to that, she shows up at the facility and more than likely, there's going to be people outside who are going to scream at her, who are going to say horrible things to her, who are going to shove things in her face and try to prevent her from going into the clinic in the first place. And that's just a small snapshot of, of what it's like. In this context, who does it benefit to roll back these laws? You know, it's a terrific question because sometimes I really wonder. It certainly doesn't benefit women and their families. It doesn't benefit communities and societies. We know that when women are able to make decisions about their reproductive lives, it makes their families more stable, it creates better futures, it means more stable communities. We know all of the benefits of being able to make these decisions. And these decisions don't mean that women aren't becoming mothers. Most women are. It's just about whether, when, and how, and at what time in their lives to do so. Who does it benefit to roll this back? Unfortunately, it benefits people, I believe, who don't want to see women be able to participate equally in our society. I can't come up with any other reason that you would see this kind of rollback if it weren't because the ability to decide and make decisions about your reproductive life are so central to whether you can be an equal part of the society. We know it's become a political issue. There's a very small 10 to 15% of the population who is exceedingly vocal, exceedingly opposed to women being able to make these decisions. And they are a core critical base for someone like President Trump. In the short term, obviously, there's a view that politically that's a benefit to him. In the long term, what we know is that is a losing strategy over time. And if you look at the research, if you look at people's opinions, frankly, the Republican Party would be far better off if they widened their tent and stopped being beholden to a very small, extreme vocal minority in this country, because that is not the wave of the future. That's the wave of the past. I would agree with you there. This is a good time to ask, what are the roots of abortion rights and what is the history of abortion access? One of the things people don't know and don't realize is that throughout history in this country and all across the world, women terminate their pregnancies if they need to, whether or not it's legal. In fact, in the United States, there were no laws on the books um, regulating or trying to prevent abortion up until the mid-1800s. And up until that point, you had mostly midwives and healers who were helping women end their pregnancies when they needed to. In the mid-1800s, you had the rise of the Professional Medical Association, the American Medical Association, for example, and the sort of professionalization of medicine. And there was a real gendered piece to that. Midwives and healers were women. Doctors were men. And that profession wanted to make sure that they sort of cornered the market on these kinds of issues and on 
the provision of health care, however that might look. As a result, a whole host of states banned abortion outright. We're continuing to live with that history because many of those laws remain on the books today, even though they're technically should be unenforceable because of Roe versus Wade. So you had this long history from the mid-1800s up until 1973 when Roe versus Wade said that the right to privacy in our Constitution says women should be able to make these determinations about their pregnancies and about their futures. The change happened because there was a recognition both that there were devastating public health consequences of not enabling women to make these decisions because, again, women are going to make these decisions and find ways to do it. Women who had means were able to get safe services. Women who didn't found ways. There were also women who really suffered and who either were permanently harmed physically or died. And so there was a huge change in the view of what was going to be best for public health. And that was a big part of why we saw Roe versus Wade happen when it did. And it combined with a moment in our history when there was a rise in the women's movement and a recognition that this was so central to women's equality. And so those two things converged. Ever since, we've actually seen, unfortunately, a huge backlash. And that's why since Roe, there have been almost 1,200 laws that shame, pressure, and punish women who decide to have abortions. 1,200 laws on the books in the states, which is pretty remarkable. That's a lot of laws. Right after Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973, what did the abortion clinic landscape look like? How was access in those days? Access was really burgeoning. Right after Roe versus Wade, you had this increase of women's health facilities that provided abortion care. Some of them were built on the model that had been developed in the few years prior to Roe versus Wade in a number of states that had started already to liberalize their laws. Colorado, New York, Washington, D.C., for example. And these really were geared toward providing specialty care for women's health, including the full range of reproductive health services. So there was this big groundswell all across the country of new facilities opening up. You saw maternal health improve significantly. There was this real positive impact on women's health and lives and pretty good access. A lot of hospitals provided the care, and there was really a recognition that this is a part of health care, this is a part of women's health and well-being, and it, it needs to be part and parcel of, of our communities and our society. That, unfortunately, created then a backlash, and we've been fighting that backlash ever since, trying to make sure that um, you don't have a complete loss of the ability of women to make these decisions. Even today, Although Roe versus Wade technically remains the law of the land, you could argue that for many women, especially those with fewer resources, women who are in states that have only one clinic left or two clinics left, where these multiple laws are on the books, it's a kind of a hollow shell for them. A lot of the work we do is to try to reverse that trend and really start to put in place the policies that reflect what people truly believe and want. Yes. I think it's very complicated. People don't think about uh, abortion access as something that pertains to women's health or family health, but they think about it as sort of these one-off events that happen to very unfortunate people. That's not accurate. What is the percentage of women obtaining abortions who are already mothers? 59%. That's a really big number. It is. I think and if people understood that, they would think very differently about abortions. That's right. 
What is the age group that has the highest abortion rate? Well, I'd bet that most of your listeners will assume it's young women, teenagers. They would be wrong. The group that has the highest abortion rate is actually women who are 20 to 29 years old. So that's a pretty surprising statistic. And there's actually a significant increase proportionally happening today in women who are in their sort of mid to late 30s. The, the perceptions are convenient. It's not true. Teenagers are actually incredibly responsible and understand the importance of paying attention to their reproductive and sexual health. Unfortunately, we're often, as a society, failing them by not providing comprehensive, medically accurate sexuality education that allow them to make good decisions. Thankfully, they're figuring it out in a lot of cases, despite a lot of the laws and policies on the books. Right. That goes hand in hand with trying to roll back access to contraception. What are the hurdles nowadays to get contraception? Because I think this is part and parcel of a conversation about abortion. Absolutely. We know that um, we've had good news and bad news in the area of contraception. The good news is that there have been an extraordinary increase over the last decade of the kinds of methods of contraception that are available. The vast majority of women will use a contraceptive method during the course of their lives. One of the things I like to talk about, especially when I'm talking to younger people in college campuses in particular, is to say, so think about it. In the United States today, the average number of children is two. So if a woman in this country is going to have two children, that means she's going to spend three decades trying not to get pregnant which is a really long time to be perfect at anything. <laughs> Having more methods of contraception available gives women the ability to choose a method that is going to be best for her and her lifestyle so that it can be the most efficacious possible. So that's the good news. The other good news is that the Affordable Care Act ensured that there was coverage for contraception with no copay, where historically the cost of contraception, the out-of-pocket cost, has been actually quite a barrier to women. So that's all the good news. Here's the bad news. President Trump and Congress have been trying to roll back the Affordable Care Act affordability for contraception. The administration has been unable so far to completely repeal it, but they've created a massive loophole that allows employers to decide whether their employees should have access to affordable contraception. It's an enormous loophole that we are very concerned is going to be used by a lot of people to let bosses make decisions about women's contraceptive options, which is really outrageous. So that's a huge barrier. The other barrier is that there are still questions, lack of knowledge about the methods that are available, about how best to get them. And there are some other barriers that we're trying to address through public policy solutions at the state level, even with the Affordable Care Act. Weird things that play out in how insurance works and how different methods are covered or not. When you start to get into the details, you may find that the method you think is going to be best for you may not be available at, through your provider because of the way insurance works. And so you have to sort of navigate all of that. Finding something that works for you medically is complicated enough. Exactly. And then to try and run around insurance or ACA, what, whichever the case may be, is going to be even more complicated. We're also seeing an attempt to 
defund Planned Parenthood, which is a big source of access to contraception for many women, particularly lower-income women, for whom often Planned Parenthood is their primary source of, of health care generally. So that's also a, a real barrier that's happening. Congress and the president keep trying to, to eliminate their funding entirely. And we'll see that continue over the next several years. So that's a big battle that we all have to fight. Well, in this slide, I understand that uh, there are some states who are trying to step up their efforts and provide access to contraception. That's absolutely right. We which, are seeing which states are those. So actually, just in the last year, we saw 11 states and the District of Columbia adopt new policies that support access to contraception. So you had states that may be ones that you might expect to do things like that. California, Massachusetts, Maryland, New York, Oregon. But you also had states like Virginia and Maine and Nebraska move things forward. Colorado, which is sort of a purple state, as they say. So you're seeing this happen where state legislators and advocates on the ground are saying of the federal government, if the president and Congress are on a mission to attack contraception, to roll back the Affordable Care Act, to undermine the affordable no copay provision within that, then we're going to step up because this is what our residents need and deserve, and it's what the vast majority of Americans want. So we're seeing a real move in the other direction, and I expect that we're going to continue to see that in the next few years because it is so central to people's lives. People understand the impact of not having access to affordable contraception. Right. Otherwise, you might you have an abortion that's if right. you don't have contraception. Well, or you're, you know, you're going to have costs that are prohibitive for some for many people. You're not going to be able perhaps to utilize the method that's best for you, and you're not going to be able to really control decisions about your reproductive life. Decisions about using contraception, whether you need an abortion, what kind of maternity care you're going to have, what your prenatal care looks like. These are all decisions and all questions that face many women at just different periods in their time, different points in their lives. So it isn't like these are all different women. These are the women using contraception. These are the women who may be getting abortions. These are the women who are having children and needing prenatal care and, and maternity coverage. It's part of the spectrum of women's reproductive lives. Right. So we all find ourselves on this spectrum, each one of us, depending on where we are in our reproductive lives. Exactly. One takeaway from this interview that really stood out to me was the fact that there is overwhelming public support across the board for reproductive rights and that the history about rights revolved around public health and safety. Women face a 30-year spectrum during which they have to decide when they will need contraception, become a mother, require prenatal care, and potentially obtain an abortion. Being able to make these decisions about their reproductive lives makes families more stable and creates better futures. I believe it will lead to more equitable participation by women in the economy and culture of the nation. Since we now know that 80% of the population supports abortion rights, let's stop treating it as a taboo and start talking about it with our peers like the healthcare issue that it is. Part two features more of our conversation with Andrea Miller, in which we discuss how men are 
equally supportive of this issue and unpack the Hyde Amendment. The misperception that this is something that happens to other people, that it's not a part of many people's lives, that it's something that shouldn't be talked about because it's so divisive, that's a really problematic misperception. And the notion that the women for whom access to abortion matters are these other women that aren't the women in people's daily lives. I think those are probably the two biggest misperceptions about who are these women who have abortions and what is actually public opinion and people's real attitudes about this. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumud. Find us online at futurehindsight.us and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.